and welcome to WNHH Radio's High Haven, a program about everything Jewish in our community. There is nothing more Jewish, more inspiringly and entertainingly Jewish, than reading novels by New Haven's own Alan Appel. <laughs> he has a new one out. I just read it for the second time, and I keep thinking about it. The book is called The Book of Norman. Get it? Alan, who's a staff reporter for The Independent, as well as a playwright and a novelist and a great guy, is here in the WNHH studio to tell us all about his new book and about his split life. Reporter by day or sometimes night, novelist and playwright on the, on the other hours. Alan Appel, welcome to the WNHH studio where you actually work. How you doing? Hi, Paul. Thank you. Nice to be here as always. And I wonder if our listeners know that uh, when, when that uh, introductory music comes on, you are actually dancing around the studio. Well, we're on Facebook Live. Oh, they see you. Okay. <laughs> How can you not dance to the Afro-Semitic experience it's, doing Eliyahu Hanavi? It's possible, but it's it hard. It is possible. Maybe if you're like, if you're been amputated. You have <laughs> it's true. Even there, you can dance. So, Alan Appel, you have a new book out, The Book of Norman. It's a wonderful, zany, and also deep, I would argue, deep novel. Although you don't realize you're getting serious theological debate. You're reading an interesting, fun story. Tell us about how the book is doing. Well, the book is uh, the book got some attention last week at Trinity uh, College, where there's some, something called a roundtable on... Uh, you just go right into the mic more direct. Okay, a roundtable on uh, religion and public life. And that was sort of interesting, all these kind of sociology professors and, and Were so Were you on the panel? I was there for the, it, the, these people get together for lunch and they kind of talk with, while well, eating. So not with their mouth full, but they ask me questions while we eat. It was, it's kind of, uh, uh, they'd read a couple of chapters and they had, you know, questions um, uh, to some extent, uh, you know, like how close to the bone was the material. And um, so you wrote a novel and so people just briefly know oh, yeah. about two brothers the main one is norman and his brother john it's 1967 norman has dropped out of the jewish seminary to become a rabbi coming home to la his father died within the year and everyone's dealing with that he's deciding to go off his judaist practice start eating cheeseburgers and everything but his brother gets um gets con isn't being converted by the mormons and his mother's freaking out and everyone's life's kind of falling apart and, and john and norman are working at a summer camp where um, a Jewish summer day camp in 1967, while the world is exploding around them, both mm. their personal life and America with the Vietnam War, mm. and they are there these two beautiful young Amazon women from Israel <laughs> working there who turn out to be angels who are going to help Norman fight for the soul of their recently departed father. So there are volleyball scenes, zany camp play scenes about Noah's Ark, hilarious scenes about cheeseburgers and family fights, but it also becomes like all your novels, which are so much fun and plot driven, a serious discussion about what Judaism is about, how Judaism reacts to other religions, what other religions are about. We learn a lot about Mormonism and very respectfully in this book and what life's about. And so it's interesting to me that you write this novel that to me, like all your novels would make a great movie or, you know, a TV movie or something. But at the same time, it deals with such interesting issues that your gig after the book comes out, is talking to professors of religion <laughs> at Trinity College. So, how did that discussion go? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, it was one of those uh, afternoons that made me realize I'm happy with the life I'm in. That I, you know, I, there was a time when I was, you know, I'm, I'm a, I thought I should be a, like a professor Monke, 
Um, What's but, Professor Monkey? I might have been Professor. Uh, sounds better in French or something. Sounds like you're a more official smart guy if you're Monkey. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but but uh, but um, you know, it was it was interesting that uh, you know they read it through the prism of being academics. There was one guy there, for example, who. Um, uh, in the in the course of uh, his uh, somebody else asking me actually kind of interesting questions about about um, the uh, appeal of Mormonism to somebody uh, who was raised in a kind of conservative Jewish world and of course in this book you're writing about something you know your brother correct was it that year 1967 that he became a Mormon um, you guys are raised as conservative Jews in L.A. right. You went to the Jewish seminary not to become a rabbi, I don't believe, but to be a Jewish scholar, right? Something and like did that. Did you drop right? out? I did. It was the Hebrew Teachers College. Uh, I dropped out with 110 credits, which was six short of my uh, Bachelor of Hebrew Literature. Why wouldn't you have gone for the last six? I could have spent the rest of my life having, having BHL after my name. And you might not have been Monkey, but either way, why, <laughs> why didn't you go for the last six? Well, it was it was it was the height of um, you know anti-Vietnam protests and um, doing something for the Morningside Heights community, um, you In know minority York. community up near Columbia, and we I was involved with kind of organizing rent strikes and tutoring programs, and you know I think it was a little I think I relied on sort of what we call the revolution in order to uh, have my break from the beloved Jews. I needed um, I think I needed to uh, I, I knew that wasn't the direction that I, my life was going to take, but it was very hard for me almost to strictly on the merits to make a kind of cerebral decision. So what I said to myself is I can't keep on going to like Talmud 301. Um, fascinating as it is to, you know, debate about what happens if two people come to an intersection, one guy carrying a jug of wine, one guy carrying a stick of lumber and the lumber hits the guy with the, the jug of the, at the same time, who's got the responsibilities? You mean they accidentally collide? And, the, and then and there's those jugs shatter? The jugs shatters, and this is a famous uh, kind of one of the rudimentary debates in, 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 in the Talmud course that I was taking at the time. The question is, who's responsible? And then there are 42 other uh, corollary questions like, what level of damages? I mean, is the guy with the stick of lumber because he was carrying something that extended beyond his personal body was he so like was he, he was, responsible and this is like any kind of tort case in american exactly court. so for instance like to what extent was the guy with the jug not paying enough attention and to what extent should the guy with the lumber have had not as big a piece if he's walking that way or held it in a different way that's right and the and uh um right and levels of damages and so on and so forth so when you're 20 years old you could say well gee if a revolutionary is ha ha revolution's happening in the street and there's injustice i need to be out there not in here but maybe, Alan, when you and I are in our later years now, do you look back the way I do and say, maybe if I had stuck with that, that in fact deals with just as many important issues of human relations and I could have done more for the world, not you, but you know, if I took more seriously studies like that at the time and been able to contribute to society in a less emotional or um, reactive way. Really hard to know, you know, it, it, it's, it is it is possible to have this notion of yourself that there's a through line in your life and you would have ended up where you end up just by taking uh, road A as opposed to road B. On the other hand, I think so much of where we end up is, um, uh, is a kind of uh, happenstance almost to some extent. Mm -hmm. But, um, um, you know, but it should be said, though, that the, the, there was a guy at the seminary 
I'm sure you know him, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and uh, you know some of those um, uh, scholars were uh, you know arm in arm with Martin Luther King, and, and and a lot of a lot of them whose names are lesser known went down to register voters, and uh, that was also kind of inspirational. So, but Abraham Joshua Heschel did stick with the Talmud study in addition to being the only Jewish leader who, in fact, did often march with Martin Luther King, unlike the other ones who did claim it during the surprise movement. They were actual friends, correct? And he's in the front he, lines at Selma. But well, he was the name that always comes up. He's not just a throwaway mind. You might have heard of him. He's the single Jewish social justice figure from the 60s who walked the walk in such a way that he remains a, a symbol for Jews who say we have to be part of the world to make it better. And correct. Justice, but also someone who wrote just as movingly, and I would say has just much impact today, on the way Jews are rediscovering spiritual practice. Correct. He said in American, he, he had come, I guess, fled the Holocaust, I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. he came here. And he believed that there's a lot of emptiness to the way Judaism is being practiced here, that people, when they're praying, were just mouthing the words and not feeling it. I remember one, but I was in Jerusalem reading his book about Sabbath on Sabbath, on Shabbat, and about how do you make that meaningful and what is that really about, about stopping and, and um, seeing time in a new way. And I'm wondering, going back to your Talmud class, if <laughs> you were inspired by Abraham Joshua Heschel to go out in the street, but whether the looking back on it now, and I promise it's not criticism at all. This is the kind of stuff I wrestle with, because when I read your books, they're always a way for me to continue wrestling with my own questions about how to be a Jew, how to be a good person, how to interact with the world, and how to wrestle with truth when I don't believe in fundamentalist view of religion or that my religion is true or better than another religion, but yet it has truth. So when you look at Heschel, do you think a more complete way to be inspired by him is to both strengthen your Jewish identity and knowledge and strengthen your ties and commitment to people beyond your Jewish life and a just society. No, no, I think I think you're absolutely right that he did not see any contradiction between um, studying Talmud and and marching in Selma. Uh, but you know, uh, I was a, an adolescent, and in my adolescent rebellion, it had to be A or it had to be B. I was looking for a and kind of pure, purity you, of a path. I think, and you did amazing work. I mean, you also wrote, published a book of poetry around then. You did finish <clears throat> college at Columbia, correct? Even Eventually, they eventually threw you out, you after know? they threw us out. Yeah. And Alan, or, I'm going to ask you to pull the mic a little bit, turn so you're more directly on it. I'm going to remind people that you're listening to High Haven and WNHH Radio, your home for community radio at 103.5 FM. We're talking to the New Haven Independence, Alan Appel, who, I don't know if you know this when you read his wonderful articles every day in The Independent, Alan is a lifelong author and playwright. How many books have you published, Alan? Uh, about 14 books and uh, nine novels, eight or nine novels. I've read all the novels at least once. Um, and they all have these themes that your new novel, The Book of Norman, which is just out, about two Jewish brothers in 1967 in Los Angeles, one of whom was being converted to the Mormons, the other whom was dropped out of Jewish seminary on the way to becoming a rabbi, but wrestling with what his faith and life and what death and spirit mean. And the big issue is that they're fighting about the fate of their recently dead father's soul. Is that soul going to be in um, a very uh, carefully architected Mormon heaven, or is it going to be in a kind of um, Jewish heaven? And I'm not and what sure does that what mean? Jewish so heaven's the Mormons like. Say, and both religions, don't they have a philosophy of what happens in the first 11 months or a year after a person dies, what happens to their soul? Uh, I think so. Uh, but oh, you don't think so? You just wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> you know so. Well, the 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 the... the the conflict in the book and actually the you know the the kind of journey that i that i took myself in writing it is that um the the character um you know based on my brother who became a mormon really wanted a kind of blueprint about heaven and um and what was going to happen specifically to the father who just died he, 
is right. he going to be okay? It was almost an, it was an expression of his uh, his love or his devotion for the father. You know, someone at Trinity College um, did raise the question that what kind of father was this father that the two boys are arguing about? Uh, and it was something that never really occurred to me, and and I realized that that in talking about and arguing about the fate of their father's soul, they were somehow working through their relationship, the pluses and the minus that they had to their father, but only after the father was gone. That was so clear in the book because you actually had them talking about that. You have, um, you have Norman says to John, hey, wait a second, you're throwing down like this about the father's soul when he was here and he was at the track all the time and right. he wasn't doing well in life. You never talked like that about him. You were frustrated with him, but now all of a sudden you're caring so much. And I think what you're saying right. is that as kids, that's how we resolve disputes with our parents. We, in fact, love them deeply and care about them so much. And while they're alive, it might not be as evident. But then when they're dead, even these people in the 60s, John, who had been a hippie and doing drugs all the time, all of a sudden cleans up and becomes a Mormon because he wants to have his father have a good place in heaven, a way to understand what his life's going to be like if you believe in his soul, correct? Well, that's right. Uh, uh, but, you know, And there are all these conversations, I guess, that they that their brothers felt that they should have had with their father, but he was away or he wasn't available. And, you know, we, 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 we used, we were joking about the, the, you know, professor Monquet. There's a wonderful, another French phrase that one of my life's goals at the new Haven independent before, before I um, uh, retire from doing stories is I want to use the phrase uh, There's a French phrase called l'esprit d'escalier. I don't know. Do we allow French phrases in the independent? We don't uh -huh. do too much. We do a specific link to what they mean. Now that's that phrase means the spirit of the escalier, like an escalator, the spirit of the staircase. And what that means is, after you've gone to your meeting or had your your interview, um, you think of ninety four things that you should have said, but you only come to your mind as you've left the office and are going down the back stairs. So this book is full of a lot of. Uh, so what do Mormons believe in that first year? What has to happen? What is the brother trying to have done for the father? Well, the key thing is that for the Jews, the timing is important. As you pointed out, you know, you, you have 12 months there. Um, well, for 11 months, you go every day to the synagogue to say Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, for the departed parent. And do we believe, I, there isn't one belief in Judaism. I think that rabbis disagree a lot correctly, but isn't this one belief that for 11 months, the, the um, soul is in the intermediate space between earth and heaven? Well, what in is limbo. The, I don't, what, is there a, is there a, a Hebrew term for limbo? I never heard of it. It's not Gehenna. No, no, no. That's the bad place. That's like yeah. uh, Gehenna. So you want to make sure the soul doesn't end up permanently in Gehenna. You want us to be heaven, but then a lot of Jewish scholars don't even believe in heaven, right? We don't even believe there's a soul that goes somewhere else. Well, that's precisely the issue when the when the Mormon to be challenges his older brother. It's like, what did you learn at the seminary? Uh, uh, and um, the, what the brother says is. Uh, Basically, my, you know, what we took away from our studies of the afterlife was like a shalom partner, you know, like see, see you. Um, so, right, so, so, so there's always two Jews, three opinions. Right. I mean, the afterlife is something that people argue about and don't ever. Or even what a soul is, right? Neshama. What do we believe a soul is in Judaism? Do we believe that there's some soul that lived before you were born, got breathed into you? Because we do say prayers first thing in the morning, right? That thank you for breathing the soul in me. And there's a discussion about whether that means that you're breathing a new soul into the body that had departed. You talk about this in the book when, when John, I mean, Norman is always praying every day. He says, holy cow, every morning I'm praying that my soul's being back breathed in. But then there's discussion. Is that actual God breathing a soul back into you and to depart when you were gone and go somewhere else? Like was Paul back at the track, the father, or is it more like there's a dormant life force that 
gets activated that's already there yeah no well it's uh the you know it depends on which rabbi you're consulting as but you yet point. there is this practice that goes across all traditions we say kaddish for 11 months i would argue that's more about helping the survivor cope that you're thinking about the person you've lost every day because your life hasn't gone back to normal and you're helping deal with that while you're also trying to operate in the real world at the hours you're not at shul. Right, and I think the received wisdom is that, you know, the, the, the regularity of saying Kaddish should, uh, you know, um, it should sort of terminate around 10 months because... I thought it was 11 months. Or 11 months. If you, if you, actually, if you go to the last date of the... It means that this person was you know, not such a great person, they need a lot of help with the Kaddish. But so the, they need help to get, make sure they get into heaven, but that's only one explanation, right? But, but I, you know, you should ask people who say the Kaddish, are they thinking about, you know, a kind of slow ascent month after month of saying Kaddish? Uh, and, well, I said it 11 months for my dad. Right. And I don't believe at all in any of the stories that there's a God figure who says things and does stuff and that there's this place where the soul is in limbo and your prayer is going to lift it. I do believe it had more to do with the survivor that sort of received wisdom of religions over years as we find out how to keep living and find meaning in it. Well, that's and right. that for the Jews, we found that you can't just go back to life as normal when you lose a parent. The first month, you got it. First week, you don't even leave the house. People come to you to say Kaddish. Then they, the community gets you out of your house to say Kaddish every day in a synagogue with, with at least 10 adults so that you're out with community comforting you and that you're thinking about the loved person, but you're also out in the real world after the first week and especially after the first 30 days because your life goes on. It's just that you can't run around thinking it's completely back to normal. But what do the Mormons believe? They don't have the same kind of debate. They do believe one thing about the soul and what happens in that first year, correct? Well, I'm not sure if it's, uh, if, if, if it's um, you know, time sensitive as they, as they say among the Mormons, but they definitely... But in the book, John and... Um, and the Mormons think that there's this deadline coming that they have to race to convert the father and get him into heaven. Well, the irony is that is John, the one who's is the one who's becoming a Mormon. It, 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 he still has the kind of traces of his uh, of this folk belief that the uh, that that what he wants to do to intervene for his father's soul that that should happen before before their father ends up in Jewish heaven. Uh, and he's right. He wants to make sure his father goes to Mormon heaven rather than Jewish heaven. And he's afraid every and time. And who doesn't believe there's a Jewish heaven somehow still is fighting for it because they don't want his, their Mormons taking his father to Mormon he, heaven. He's a reluctant defender of the faith, and he know. And what he realizes when he gets challenged about what Jewish heaven is like is he learned he learned nothing at the seminary. And uh, you know, if the truth be told, these ideas of the Kaddish and the soul and all that. Um, all of these kind of emerge in the Middle Ages. If you, you know, at the, at the classical Jewish sources, I mean, there's very little about the afterlife. And I always point to um, the death of Moses. Now, if there was anybody who belonged at the right hand of God or in the best condominium in heaven or wherever, with, you know, the, the, the best place, it would have been Moses. But, but, but how was Moses treated uh, at the end of uh, the Torah? His death. First of all, he doesn't. He doesn't get his. He doesn't get to go into he the doesn't promised land. Get, and all of it, you could make the case that it's even cruel that God says, "There it is," but not you. And then the phrase that, <coughs> excuse me, the the phrase is he's gathered onto his, he's ga gathered onto his fathers. Now, what does that mean? That's like the murkiest of the murkiest. He's gathered onto his fathers. Is how Moses, the you know, the template for the afterlife. Uh, his and he's and he's buried in a um, in a, uh, an unmarked grave somewhere. So, if you think about that, that type of thing, if you're a person who wants a bit of direction, I mean, that's 
that's a kind of bad lesson. Well, not a bad lesson. It's a good lesson. Judaism tries to keep it. You have to kind of figure it out yourself, too. Well, that's And the not pro- believe they're easy answers. And it, could that be because rabbis, um, about 2,000 years ago, hijacked the religion so that it would be less hocus-pocus and more human beings have to figure it out and not make it as much cultish? And, and then roll the clock ahead a couple of hundred years from that, and, and, and Jews are being converted uh, to this new faith, or rather, the, the Christianity. They, the, right, they're in the early, right, these, the new Jews who are the Christians, they're still Jews, but, but, but they're going towards a sect, a denomination that puts center stage, Machaye Hametim the resurrection of the dead. So, so the rabbis insert into the beginnings of the liturgy, the prayer book, this, this idea, which is now appealing to people. And the fact that's why we say, because we do the Amidah, the correct. prayer three times a day and we pray, but the Machayeham team, the first is, of those 18 blessings we talk about who, or it's just the second one, you know, Machayeham team who raises the dead. And that's always been an interesting phrase. So the rabbis put that in to compete with Christianity. I think so. But what, but we mean something different by it. We don't, believe that Jesus comes. Some Jews believe that the raise, dead will be raised when Elijah the prophet Eliyahu comes back. Other people say it's more metaphorically that we're spiritually dead or our lives are going to death and that by living a more moral life, right? And by saying these prayers three times a day and thinking about what we value, we resurrect ourselves or what do you think? Well, there we, you know, at the, at the reform synagogue that I, that I uh, go to these days, that you have, you have alternate readings. You have team slash Hakol. It can be the resurrection of the dead or the restoration of everything so you you take your pick but so judaism remains not obsessed with the afterlife is the point whereas but, 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 Christ- but mormons are and that's often totally conflict, totally obsessed not between these brothers but in real life that's the Jews issue really take offense of how mormons are always trying to convert our dead relatives including holocaust victims through their own ceremonies to convert them to mormons so they'll get into mormon heaven and so many of us Jews, even though we believe that's hocus pocus is not real, we still take offense and feel violated about it. And you show that writ small between two brothers fighting over their father's soul that way. And that's the trigger of the of the of the really um, um, upswing in the action in the story. Uh, the, at some point, uh, the the narrator says to himself, "If my brother wants a different idea of of uh, what's going to happen to him and uh, and our father's soul, that's okay as long as he keeps it to himself." What, what what becomes problematical is one day the brother presents what's called an ordinance, which is a formal Mormon piece of paper uh, uh, in order to get permission from the Jewish brother to trigger what's called proxy baptism. And that makes our narrator uh, go ballistic. And, uh, and his position is... Uh, you deal with your soul and your immediate family the way you want, but let's whether or not our, he believes in a soul. <laughs> whether, yeah, that's right. I don't believe in it, but I don't want you to mess with it. That's right. But, but what you should be messing with is Alan Appel's new book, the book of Norman. I've read it twice, loved it both times. And you're hearing Alan talk about it on WNHH radio's high Haven at 103.5 FM. Alan, would you mind turning to page 267? I don't so mind. The great twist on the plot here, like so many fun, great novels you brought to a world that is completely realistic with one super natural twist that we have to suspend disbelief and consider part of the story. Oh, Jewish angel. So we're in 1967. Earth angel, Earth angel. But the two fun (laughs) characters in this book are these two women who came from Israel for the summer to work at the summer camp who just got out of the six day war. They're Amazon women. They turn out to be angels who are great at volleyball and beat the Mormons and are helping Norman beat, the Mormons 
to rescue the father's soul. Now, in the book, you actually tell us about different kinds of angels. And again, in Judaism, unlike in some other religions like Mormonism, everyone, including the scholars and the rabbis, disagree about what we actually believe on so many matters, including about the existence of angels, right, and what they mean. Totally. And your book is about what's an angel. Now, these are kind of angels called malachim, right? But there are dibiks, there are ibers, there are seraphim, there are malachim who are messengers. Ophanim. So there are at least five kinds of well, th- these are ideas that have emerged in the Middle Ages, actually, I think, is what, is what my character learns as well as I personally learned because it, it, uh, it, it made me do research. He had to do counter-Mormon research, and in fact, there are all, the, there are, are all, these, um, are all these types. I think this business of Jewish angels actually emerged around the time of Kabbalah emerging uh, in Jewish scholarship, interestingly. Which is mysticism. Correct. And, and where the religion, get, control the religion and experience the religion passes from rabbis who controlled it to the masses, right? That was the beginning of Hasidism and, and that you can have these mystical experiences without being the most learned scholar. Well, correct? the Hasidim didn't, didn't appear till the 18th century, but, but, but a kind of formalizing kind of Jewish hocus pocus, uh, that's not. I it's a bit, bit, That's a how bit most of... Jews see it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. We got our hocus pocus too. Well, you, so, know where, you know where the phrase hocus pocus comes from? This was from a high school Latin. It's hoc corpus meum. This is my body. So when Christians want to make fun of the, the, the kind of uh, um, uh, in, in, invisible turning of uh, wine to blood and wafer to body, uh, they say it's hocus pocus, hoc corpus meum. And, and you know, how to explain all these things that are impossible in life? You do it on two levels. There's the, there's the serious Kabbalistic research, and then it, it filters down to regular people in terms of believing different kind of categories of assistance. All right, so let's talk about Malachi. I mean, angels will bring us this assistance. Alan Appel is going to read a passage from the Book of Norman, so his to, new novel out. Right, and if our if our readers are interested in supporting local bookstores, the wonderful Book Trader has some of the Book of Norman in the window on Chapel Street by the Book the uh, Book of Norman. So then there was the distant wail of a police or fire engine or an ambulance racing through the streets, and I kept listening. The floor of the duplex creaked slightly. A few crickets were signaling each other from across the street. Otherwise, the night was silent, and I stayed put. I continued to read. It turns out the smallest chapter of all in the angelic reference works that I was consulting, the subject receiving scantest attention dealt with the likes of my angels of that summer. I recognized Tali and Aviva almost instantly as members of the group called the Malachim, or in English, the Messengers. That's the great democratic group of angels dedicated to helping us humans, one-on-one, with our seemingly impossible tasks here on Earth, like choosing what work to do in life, or finding the right partner, or in my case, that summer, coming to terms with Paul, my father's life and his death. Still, there was absolutely nothing in these old texts to indicate that angels could play basketball like Tali could, or do a handstand like Aviva, or kiss and thrill the small of the back like the both of them, or talk about the prophet Jonah as if he were some stoned hippie long hair they had once dated and dropped, or shriek and giggle as you drove fast along the sunset strip, or become shopaholics, or be such first-rate counselors in a camp for spoiled Beverly Hills kids. So many essential aspects of Jewish souls and angels' behavior remained unclear to me. It was as if the whole tradition came down to saying, What? You think we Altakakar rabbis have all the answers? We barely know the questions. And anyway, it's verging on the idolatrous. The Torah is not enough for you? What's wrong with you, son? Let the Gentiles have the angels. You say you want more of this esoteric stuff? Solution? 
Just keep reading, pal, because in this territory, you're pretty much on your own. And then something impelled me to locate a pamphlet with the daily prayers from the top drawer of the desk. It clearly hadn't been touched since my bar mitzvah. And I read and haltingly translated aloud what you're supposed to recite uh, at the first instant of waking up in the morning. In translation, that prayer would be, thank, Thanks to you, God, you everlasting ruler has returned, who has returned my soul uh, inside of me with mercy, a sign of your great faithfulness. Uh, you want me to keep reading? Or? Nope, I'm going to talk a little more. You, that was Alan Appel reading from the Book of Norman. Alan Appel, the Independence, great news reporter and arts reporter, also as a novelist. Is your, you said your ninth novel? I think so. I can't quite remember. A to... book about two brothers in 1967 <laughs> L.A. Jewish brothers fight, one of whom was being converted to Mormonism, fighting over the soul of their recently departed father and the journeys they both go on. And all your books involve spiritual journeys through two different faiths, at least. I think so. And, I, I and think it so. obviously mirrors your own journey to some extent because you dropped out of um, Jewish seminary, as did so many of your main characters. Your brother became a Mormon. What did your brother and what did Mormons in general think of this book? Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm still in a kind of walking on eggs mode. I, we have heard that the, the book is going to be reviewed in the coming weeks, on the one hand, by Hadassah Magazine, which is a magazine that is, I think, read by 330,000 Jewish women, on the one hand. That's great. That's and, a market. And, a, and apparently... And they it, read. They, I say of those 330,000 women, 340,000 of them read a lot of books. Well, women in general read fiction, not men. And uh, I like, read fiction like religiously. That's my main. Well, see, thing. you're a very un, you're very unusual. You have a lot of uh, you have female a lot of good sense, female characteristics there, which makes sense. Um, and on the other hand, we uh, have heard that the entertainment and arts editor of the Deseret News might be interested in the Mormons. reviewing. Well, the the, 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 the main it's the, the main play, newspaper the, the of the Salt Mormon, Lake. They decided, which I think was a great was a savvy move. They decided, I believe, not to sue the people who did that play, which you go to that play and they're basically saying Mormonism is totally ridiculous and exploitive, but it's also having fun. They actually decided to stand outside the play and hand out their Book of Mormon and say, now you've seen the play, come see the real thing. They did, and 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 I think, um, you know, if, if memory serves, I think they, the church might have even taken out advertisements in the play they did. bill. They did, So. Yeah. No fools. Really they. smart. So, what? Did, what did, have you heard? Anything? What did your brother tell you about this book? Well, it it's it's actually um, w was a real subject of concern for me how he was going to take it. And he he uh, after he after he read ten pages, he sent me a um, uh, an email to say that um, uh, he you know he didn't want to mince words. He was he was upset that he thought um, I was making fun of. Um, uh, texts or uh, concepts that he thought were sacred. See, I felt that when I read that book, I was so impressed with, it's clear that you are not a Mormon and you think some of the stuff is BS. You also think you are a practicing Jew, and you, and, but that you think a lot of the Jewish stuff is BS and that you took both faiths so seriously, both set of ideas so seriously, and in the end, without giving away any of the plot, the main character has a deeper appreciation of both traditions and of the brother's choice. Well, that's exactly right. And well, but your what, brother didn't get there. Well, what I had to explain to him, uh, I, I don't know if I was successful, and I, I'm actually nervous about it. And we uh, is that this was this person is a character. Uh, yes, it's it's based on us uh, to some extent, but these are fictional characters, and in fact, 
the narrator of the book, who indeed is in the beginning of the story, um, responding to this crisis in his life, in his relationship with his brother, with um, stereotypes and quick, easy jokes about the Mormons. Well, that's part of the process of working through it. That's the setup. Exactly. And what I explained to him is, if you read more than 10 pages, my beloved brother, you might find that the arc of his character's journey is that he, he gets embarrassed by his responses. His mind is full of one cliche after another. And as the Mormon church itself recognized in its, relation, in its response to the play, you, if you want to talk to people who don't agree with you, you have to recognize what they're thinking at the beginning to get them somewhere else. Right, and you, ha- and you have to be prepared, as the missionaries are, who, who the, 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 the Mormon uh, convert brother presents, uh, that they know how to respond to people's skepticism. So, and you, the Mormons love Jews. They really want yeah, to convert the Jews. Yeah, but they love the a way to convert us to make us Mormons. That, that's exactly right. To be right. under their control and think the way they do and not be us. That's exactly right. So I, I don't know how my brother is ultimately gonna, going to respond to it. I hope, I, I hope it'll be positive. But as, as uh, I, I, I have explained in some other stuff, I've, some essays I've written about this, I, I, I went through seven or eight drafts of this book. and I, uh, It's been a long time since I read the first, one of the earlier drafts years ago. Right, and it was, it was too close to the biographical experience, and I had to do tricks that you do when you write novels in order to distance yourself from... You've got to keep the emotional moment alive because that's the engine that's driving the story. If you're too close to the to the sources, um, you get dragged down. And yet, you have to write what you know. Well, right, but it, but you have to. So, so so you have to be close to the story in one sense to be believable and capture the essence of it. You, but you're saying, at the other hand, if you get too close, you get burned and the story gets singed. You get too autobiographical. You put too much exposition in, and those things are death to a story. Because you're trying to settle a score in your own mind with someone else rather than tell a good story. Exactly so. So what you do is you, um, you know, these are tricks that people learn, I think, in writing workshops. But in my case, for example, my real brother and I, uh, I'm younger than he is. But, and so in the novel, what I did is I flipped it. I turned the character who's based on me. I made him older. And I made that brother younger. And that changes some of the dynamics. Totally changes the dynamics. And the actual triggering incident when my brother presented the ordinance to convert our father in, or to offer our father the Mormon gospel in heaven. Now, that occurred, you know, seven or eight years ago. I transferred the entire thing back 30 years to our adolescence. We have a, a, the, the mother tries to negotiate between the two boys. And our mother, may she rest in peace, was, was, you know, the, the farthest thing in the world from being like a top-notch waitress in a Jewish deli. But that's what I made the mother in the story. So I, uh, and, and um, I... What did your real-life mother do for a living? She was, she was a housewife, and she wasn't very good at it. But your, but your dad was a gambler? Yeah, my, da- um, uh, my dad was close to the kind of character of Paul. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, no. So he, now what happened with you and your brother? Your brother converted to Mormonism in the 60s, and to this day... He's had a years. he's had a wonderful Mormon life. He's got four Mormon children. And are you guys close? I I think so. I mean, he's still in California. And, and does he uh, try to convert you? No, no. The thing is that this was never an issue between us ever until he he in real life we were renting a house together one summer for a week, and he presented the uh, Mormon ordinance to to trigger proxy baptism for that, you for me for our father. Oh. I never bothered him about his choices, but in real life, that when he was, I, and I was utterly surprised in my How many reaction. years after your father's death was it? Oh, our father died in 89, and this must have happened uh, 
10 or 12 years ago. So long time. But so it you're was, on vacation. He tries to get you to sign to right, have he, your father's well, baptized he, after his death. Well, we were watching on PBS Daniel Deronda. There's some irony there. It's her only book about the Jews. And it was the PBS on Daniel Deronda and the whole family sitting around watching television. He comes out with this document and he asked me, um, is this how our father's name is spelled in Hebrew? Because the, the, uh, and it looked like a, uh, like a registration form for the DMV or something like that. And uh, I said, yeah, what is this thing? And he explained that this is going to trigger a ceremony where dad will be offered the gospel. He, he's not going to be forcibly converted, but he's, in, he's somewhere up there in heaven. And, but and how do they know whether he accepted? Well, what you do is it triggers a ceremony here in a Mormon uh, um, ward or a center, not the temple, but you have a proxy rep, uh, standing in for, um, you know, a Mormon in good standing stands in for our father. And then I guess my brother would go through a ceremony in which he offers it. And the, I don't know how they can determine what the response is going to be, because how, how do you explain the line of communication? This is an actual service that they take very seriously. And in the character's journey, he comes to understand, as I came to understand during the research, that this is for um, a Mormon, especially for uh, offering their gospel to uh, to a very close relative. It's like a Mormon mitzvah, right? It's so, so important to him. What, what did you say to your brother, and what happened next at the time? Not the novel, but the real life. Well, I flipped. I totally. I I, I just was livid. I was. I said, you know, I said, don't don't you dare something like that. And I, in fact, our kids had to had to um, leave the room restrain us almost so in the end did he have the ceremony for your father's soul? you know I, I, honest to goodness i don't know and um but you weren't going to participate contribute but i was not going to do I, I think they they like to have um the you know blood close blood relatives give permission so you know i don't know and i um you know i i, I love my brother but i just didn't want him to mess with our father who i always thought was a jewish guy all right well, you're, you've written a book that's not just for Jewish guys or gals, but for anyone to read called The Book of Norman. It's a wonderful novel. Alan Appel is the author, and he's here on High Haven on WNHH Radio. Talk about a reading from it. Alan, can I be failing you to read another segment, page 83? One part I love about this book, and you've had this in real life, I believe, though I don't know the whole story, is your main character is questioning his Judaism after being on a track to become a rabbi, drops out of the seminary, and decides he's not going to follow kosher rules, and he's going to dive into cheeseburgers and <laughs> shellfish oh my gosh. and think he's going to find salvation there and enjoys it. And he goes to this place called Ships, <laughs> where you can get, load up on trafe, on a non-kosher food. And um, I love the passage on page 83 when he's just in... His own kind, not Mormon heaven, not Jewish heaven, trafe heaven. <laughs> That's right. And I uh, want you to read Alan Appel reading from the Book of Norman. Do you know that uh, uh, that in the 1880s, when the Reform movement was kind of launching itself and growing, going great guns, the rabbis wanted to announce that the dietary laws are passe, and they organized what was called uh, the Trafe Banquet at the Waldorf Astoria. And all the Reform rabbis of America, and there was like, you know, they had five course dinners. It was clams and lobster. And to this day, don't reform for the most part eat? Like when you go to eat cheeseburgers these days, you go with a reform rabbi, right? Oh. You go to Shake Shack or? Well, um, 
I think, you know, I, I think it, it varies from rabbi to rabbi. And I think, I think many of them are actually coming back to, to the kosher laws. But right. I thought it was a fundamental philosophy that some of these old rules were outdated and they wanted to be more like Christian society. Well, when they launched in the 1880s, they, they, they put that forward. And I think that for that, other of us who do believe there might not be inherent wisdom in some of those laws, it's still what makes us Jewish. So we follow them. Exactly. And in this case, uh, you know, the, um, and your character in the book is trying to find out if there's freedom and and meaning and soul in eating cheeseburgers. I guess, yeah. I, so I, Alan Appel reading from the book of Norman. Yeah, so the scene is that John and uh, uh, Norman are sitting in a booth very similar to the, the, to the, the booth on the cover of the book, which I must say was designed by my daughter, Sophia. We're, we're proud of that. And um, yeah, they're in this restaurant, and... Um, uh, the brother John is looking at uh, Norman, and John was recalibrating. He slowly shook his head. If we'd been playing poker, I'd just shown him that I had at least three of a kind. Should he fold, see me, or raise? Well, Mormon to be or not, my brother was good at the game. We were locked in. And then, fortunately, breakfast arrived. And thanks to the glory of ships, this restaurant here finally was not only a much-needed hiatus from our dueling, but also my long-awaited haul of every forbidden food. I took immediate inventory. There were six strips of bacon, three sausages, <laughs> two thin discs of hash browns nicely crisped in lard, three pieces of rye toast cut into halves and forming a kind of barrier protecting the two sunny side up eggs looking at me. Besides John's modest, Mor beside my brother's modest Mormon muffin sat this dazzling <laughs> cargo of pork. <laughs> crisp to perfection for all this mighty mode of meat was piled magnificently high on ship's plate that was shaped like some sort of 19th century sailing vessel it was a sloop perhaps long and trim at the bow and stern uh, uh stern being where two half globes of butter the size of golf balls <laughs> had begun their melting descent down down inexorably down toward the porcine laden lower decks a double-length toothpick leaned at a jaunty angle out of the uppermost slice of toast, and from it flew, like a maritime pennant, a wedge of orange cut to the shape of an S. I smiled at my incipient Mormon brother as if to say, I see your sin, Jonathan Gould, and I raise it by this tasty hall. <laughs> and then he said, that's a whole lot of trafe all at once, and that's some good Yiddish for an apostate in training. <laughs> and then I raised my fork like a new <sighs> devotee, and not sure before which altar to prostrate myself first, I decided to dive right into it all. <laughs> oh, well, that is wonderful writing. I got into the maritime metaphors big time. <laughs> yeah, and I love those kind of restaurants, <laughs> maritime metaphors. How many times did you rewrite that section? Um, I think uh, uh, qu quite a bit. You know, uh, rewriting, as you well know, can sometimes be painful. But, no, but we don't get to do it enough as daily journalists. Correct. But boy, does that count. When you rewrite a scene like that, that was perfect. The statement that you go off to the side about brothers' relationships when the Mormon's using trafe to try to insult the Jew, and the Jew is saying, well, you're using Yiddish, and you're supposed to be Mr. Mormon, and they're really arguing about how you're supposed to live while they're amid all this uh, bacon and lard and... and uh, you know, Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that you, picked a, you picked a good one there, you know... Uh, because the writing is so good well right and the, and and uh, and uh it, it, there's a lot it 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 both is i think uh 
you know, sort of a pleasure to the ear and the fun with the language conceits, but at the same time, it advances plot and it reveals character. Now, you you go to, and this is often a dividing line for how Jews define themselves. Will they go eat hamburgers that aren't kosher in places that have milk mixed with dairy, like cheeseburgers? You you go to Shake Shack. Do you feel your Judaism challenged, or do you just feel like it's your kind of Judaism as opposed to some other guy tells you is supposed to be the right kind of Judaism? Oh, um... Well, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the influence of all these vegetarians and vegans that have been hanging around with at the independent, but I don't actually, I don't actually go to uh, Shake Shack or, or to Five Guys the, the way I used to go. When I was a kid, I used to be called Burger because I was so in love with hamburgers. But Me I, too. I used to love McDonald's when I was growing up. Yeah. And I, you know, um, you know, my mother, who's the, the uh, character in this book, but utterly different for, in, in real life, I and mean, she was a terrible cook, but she, <laughs> but she had this idea um, that, uh, you know, this, to use uh, diamond crystal salt and to suck all the blood out of meat. But so, that's a Jewish idea, that you're not supposed to eat the blood. Well, that's right. Kosher meat has the blood removed from it. Well, and, and therefore, the burgers that she used to present to us would be akin to hockey pucks. <laughs> so no wonder I began to discover all the great burger places around town. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think all that... I don't know if we discussed this on uh, on um, maybe Lucy Gelman's show Kitchen Zinc that we used to have here on the WNHH, but uh, a, a lot of uh, family life swirls around food, and I think that comes through here. It sure does. It's a great book. I recommend that everyone buy The Book of Norman, N-O-R-M-A-N, by Alan Appel of The Independent, his ninth novel, right? I think so. And they're all great. Read them all. <laughs> The uh, book trader on Chapel Street, if you'd like to support local bookstore, has it in the window if you want to buy it there. Or it's on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. And uh, Alan, is it going to be a movie? Uh, I mean, my real question is how could it not be a movie? But I felt that way about Rabbi Casino Boulevard, your other novel. It's interesting. All my books have have had a shot, speaking of the afterlife. They do have an afterlife. They sometimes, uh, some have been optioned. You wrote a Jewish Western that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Jam full of action. Your ideas are embedded in action. Um, It's interesting you say that. And uh, I think, and I must give you a compliment, Paul, because... um, Plot has always been difficult for me. Some people do it easily, but I think this story moves in in, in part because of um, uh, the the journalism that I've been doing over the years. Because you know we have to we have to keep it moving. You know, sentence, sentence, fact, and character fact. development. So, Alan, right. is this going to be a movie? Do you have an agent working on it? Well, I know the first. I know how the movie's going to open. I've already written the opening of the screenplay. Uh, Agent, no, that's uh, that's uh, that's in in the future. But um, if you're interested, since you're such a wonderful fan, um, you can you can get it out there and take fifteen percent. Hmm, I'm not sure. <laughs> not enough. Do I get a veggie burger on the side? You you can get a if if you make this if if you're instrumental in making this into a movie, you get twenty five percent and. Um, uh, veggie Burgers for Life. My own book I hoped would be a movie <laughs> and that got nowhere, so you might want to find a better agent. <laughs> but you won't find a better novel. Book of Norman, Alan Appel, thanks for joining us on High Haven on WNHH. Alan, what a pleasure to talk to you. You are one of my favorite writers in the whole world and one of my favorite human beings and this was just a just a pleasure. Well, right back to you, Paul. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free, folks. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home 
Network Community Radio.